It's Friday, May 20th, 2022, and welcome back to Goodfellows, the Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow. I'll be your moderator today. I'm happy to report that we have a full complement of Goodfellows joining us today. That would include the historian Neil Ferguson, the economist John Cochran, the geostrategist slash historian H.R. McMaster. That's not enough firepower for you. We have one more guest for you today, and that is our friend and colleague, Victor Davis Hansen. Victor is, of course, the Martin Ely Anderson uh, Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He is a historian and a classicist, a prolific author and columnist, and in his spare time, he somehow manages to run a family farm. He is a multi-generational farmer uh, in California in the San Joaquin Valley. Victor, thanks for joining us today. Thank you all for having me. Well, Victor, I think since uh, you're talking to four California transplants and you literally are rooted in the California soil, uh, let's talk about one very pernicious issue for California, and that would be the drought. It is going to be a very long, a very hot, a very dry summer in California. And for those not familiar with California, the drought is a multifaceted problem. We have a governor who is encouraging people to voluntarily restrict their water use. Of course, Californians have turned around and increased their water use. Uh, we have environmentalists who do their best to block any and all efforts to add water storage. Uh, you have Angelinos who just do not want to have their uh, lawns turned brown and their uh, cars unwashed. On top of that, Victor, uh, the less water we have in our dams, the less hydropower, which means we're looking at the very distinct possibility of uh, rolling blackouts this summer. So, Victor, you look at California all the time. You need water, not just to have a very fertile front yard because it actually matters for your crops. Explain the drought in California and how it ties into the larger issue of California just not able to address its problems. Well, two thirds of Californians live where one third of the precipitation, and the opposite is true. One third live where there's two thirds. So our ancestors, i.e. in the 1960s in the California Water Project and the Federal Central Valley Project had this huge transference. And we finished the projects except the tertiary reservoirs, which would have given us about 10 to 15 million acre feet, temperance flats, sites, Los Banos Grandes. And what that meant was, this December, we had the wettest December on record uh, in snow and rain, and we filled uh, some of the reservoirs, but we let most of that water go out. There was not enough uh, storage. And because of fish concerns, environmental concerns, oxygenation in the Delta, we're letting water, to the, as I speak, go out to the Pacific Ocean and not go into, uh, say, San Luis Reservoir. So it's sought partly that, we're in a drought. We have now since December, we've been we've had some record low months as far as precipitation. We had a pretty good May, but it wasn't enough. And so what's happening now is all over the state, people are drawing water pumping and they're not getting any irrigation deliveries whatsoever. The California Water Project that started out as agricultural uh, for the most part is now in almost entirely municipal. So when you go by I-5 and you see that aqueduct, it's going to San Jose, it's going to Santa Barbara, it's going to uh, San Luis Obispo, then it goes over into Pyramid Lake to LA, but there's not anything being diverted for agriculture, which means they're pumping, which means they're drawing down on the water table. My well out here, uh, the water table, if we had this conversation five years ago, it was 49 feet. Today, it's 95 feet. And that meant I had an old well 60 feet, I got had a one 120, and then I finally got, gave up and drilled 450 feet. So, and our my two ag wells have been going nonstop since uh, I don't know May 1st, 24 hours a day, and they pump about 900 gallons a minute. For so, that's what everybody's doing. The person with the longest straw wins, I guess. And it's very expensive because we're, you're paying 27 cents now kilowatt hour on ag rates. So it's not sustainable. Almond prices are historical lows. Uh, it's part of the general malaise, as you pointed out. Um, eight miles over there is high-speed rail, $15 billion, not one uh, foot of track laid yet. Stonehenge. Yeah, Stonehenge. <laughs> that would have paid for all the tertiary reservoirs. We could have had 10 million acre feet of storage for that. Uh, they're talking about maybe stopping the dismantling of Diablo Canyon, the huge, gives us 10% of our clean, all of our energy, 10% uh, of our energy, but clean. It's a nuclear power plant that's been pretty good near San Luis Obispo. Um, so I don't see any way out of it because we are driven by ideology and not empiricism. And the ideological 
framework is fueled by $6 trillion in Silicon Valley market capitalization. So they're immune from criticism. They're immune from worries about their own lives. They have enough money to insulate them from the consequences of their own ideology. Can I, let me, uh, I do see some sparks of hope, uh, for example, around real estate. And sooner or later, perhaps uh, this will come to, uh, to water. Uh, California has not built a single dam since 1955. Uh, as you mentioned, the whole project, we've built some population since then. What we do have goes out there. Our, our real problem is not so much uh, where the water is, but when the water is. California has plenty of water, certainly compared to, say, Israel or Australia. Uh, we, but if you have the water comes in the winter and yes. you have to store it. Uh, um, now, one possible, I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts on uh, replenishing groundwater. That's a place it's possible to store it. Uh, I'm also curious on your thoughts of um, um, the, how does the water market work? My understanding as an economist is that it works pretty well in Australia and it's a disaster here. If you as an almond farmer, if you, as you said, the price of almonds is really low. If you want to sell your water to uh, uh, Los Angeles, my understanding is you can't do it. And, and that that certainly is one key to at least using the water we have in a reasonable uh, and, and productive way. Yeah. Well, there's this new field of subterranean storage. And one of our Hoover donors, Jim Jameson, has a company where they will go out and put cisterns underneath the ground and then in periods in January or February, pump that down or drain it down into there, force that water in and then draw it back out. And it has the uh, advantage of avoiding evaporation from the surface. And that's a new field and it's starting. Uh, what you said is applicable say before two years ago and by that i mean those water contracts say westlands water district at 40 to 50 dollars an acre foot and the market price is probably 600 those were still maybe 10 percent of those contracts were being honored and then people were selling them but that's over with there's no I, th I think they got zero allotments so almost every there is no surface what i'm trying to say is right now there from my point of view, from what I read the newsletters every day, there isn't really no surface water being sold, but there is a free market that's starting. The problem is that when you have almonds, which are 1.4 million acres, and they get down to $1.53, and you're paying $500 per acre foot, you're losing money. So what's happening is that whole corridor of the 5 million acres along the coast range, the so-called west side, that has no groundwater. It's, it's 1,500 feet deep and it's, too, it's prohibitive to pump. What I mean by that is here, if I turn on a pump at 90 feet uh, for $2 an hour, I can get, as I said, eight or 900 gallons a minute. You, you get 200 gallons a minute for $200 an hour over there. So it doesn't make sense at the price. So I think what we're going to witness is all of that land on the side uh, east of I-5, as you go from the Bay Area to LA, is going to go revert back to ro row crop, whether that's cotton or wheat. And that would mean that each year, if there's not water, then they won't plant. This problem now is if there's not water, they lose $20,000 an acre in investment. The trees will die. And I think they're going to, if you go by there, in certain places, you'll see whole blocks of almonds. They're either dead or they're being ground up and then removed. Yep. Or there'll be orchards where they'll say, you know what, this is the most productive part of the, I'll put all my water over here and cut off over there. So the market is, is reacting and there is no more subsidized water deliveries that I know of. And my, my irrigation is a repair, it's a local irrigation from district consolidated irrigation from the Sierra Nevada. We haven't had a delivery in two years. So everybody is pumping. Neil, the, in Sacramento right now, the state is running a $97 billion surplus. To put that in context, Apple last year, its net profit was $93 billion. Uh, about two-thirds of that money, Neil, comes from about one-half of 1% 1 of the state population, wealthy people. And yet the state at the same time seems to do its best to try to drive wealthy people out of the state. There's a distinct possibility, Neil, with the bear market approaching and perhaps a lengthy recession that California could soon be going from black to red. Are you going to be surprised if that happens? Well, I sometimes think California is aspiring to be the Argentina of the 21st century. Argentina at the beginning of the 20th century was 
one of the world's rich economies. And then it spent the rest of the century committing a variety of forms of financial and monetary suicide, mainly because of the, the power of, of the different interest groups that came to dominate Argentine politics. And California seems a very similar case. Its potential is perhaps the, the greatest of any comparably sized region on earth. And yet its political economy has a sort of death wish quality to it. We have a one party state, there isn't effective uh, opposition by the Republican party. Uh, the party, the Democratic party in California can uh, survive, more than survive, uh, live high on the hog with uh, donations from the wealthy elite. And uh, the result is kind of multi-layered craziness uh, at the state level, uh, all the way down to the local level, to, to the level of public schools, as well as the craziness that California exports in the form of its politicians, uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, Kamala Harris. And so we're, we're witnessing a kind of super Argentina uh, that is, in fact, at some point, either going to self-correct. At some point, Californians are either going to say to themselves, this craziness has to stop. We need, we need to clean up California politically if, if it's to have an economic future. Or if that doesn't happen, then California is going to become a place uh, where the wealthy elite don't want to live anymore. Uh, and then you're left with that, that enormous uh, red ink scenario that you just hinted at, Bill. But we're not quite there yet. The, the exodus is easy to exaggerate because a few big names get the headlines. Right. Right. Uh, in, in truth, I don't think we've really seen a big enough drain of wealth from the state uh, to meaningfully hurt the finances when times are good. But as the economy heads towards quite likely recession, maybe later this year, more likely next year, uh, that, that may change and the finances may start to, to look rockier. But I, I can't in the end figure out which it's going to be. And this is what's hard about doing history in real time. It's, is, is it actually capable of correcting itself? The United States collectively has tremendous powers of self-repair. I'm sitting here in New York, as you may possibly have worked out, and New York, when I first came here, which was back in 1981, when I was but a lad, uh, was a, a pretty messed up city. And it kept being messed up for much of the, 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 the rest of the decade. But, but it got its act together, even although it somehow slipped back. It's a reminder that you can, you can go quite low and, and turn things around. Maybe California can do that. Maybe San Francisco can do it, because we haven't talked about the urban disaster of California. We've only really talked about the agricultural rural disaster, but I don't know. I'm kind of, I, I'm not certain it can self repair. I, I wonder whether it's actually just going to be Argentina in the end. Let me put in uh, uh, two two words uh, and and, uh, and I'll be able to channel HR a little bit for hope and then we'll turn to HR for hope. <laughs> it's not so much the wealthy elite. Uh, there are pockets of California will remain nice retirement communities. Know, look at Carmel, there will always be rich people there. Uh, it is the productive elite that are, are, are leaving fast and taking their businesses with them. Because as, as uh, bad a place it is, it's a fine place to live if you have money, but it's not a great place to run the business. And that ultimately is, I think, what is going to uh, really hurt uh, California. In the near term, uh, the stock market is going down. And what's going down fastest are all the tech and green darlings located in California. And a large amount of that uh, budget surplus comes from capital gains taxes. So uh, don't that, that really, I, just to emphasize the mechanism for what Neil was talking about, uh, that, that could, uh, the stock market continue going down, especially the tech and green stocks and California will be uh, will uh, discover the limits of its finances soon. But the real problem isn't so much a, a bankrupt state government uh, that can't print its own money. We're not, we don't have inflation as a way out like Argentina did. Uh, we only have default as a way out. Uh, but I really worry about the productive uh, uh, people leaving. Um, Quick question for you, John, uh, and I don't know the answer, and you may. Uh, cap capital gains tax is a big part of uh, what is keeping Gavin Newsom rolling in uh, in dollars, uh, for the reason that you've just given, that party's over. Uh, those huge capital gains that we've seen uh, in and around Silicon Valley 
really over an, a sustained 20-year period are disappearing uh, in a puff of bearish smoke, right? Yeah. <laughs> Not so much bearish, a uh, puff of high interest rate smoke. Um, it's very natural what's going on in the stock market. You ra- uh, As real interest rates go up, prices of assets go down. And that's houses and that's stocks and especially prices of long duration assets, something where the cash flows are uh, perhaps imaginary, but certainly long delayed is going to be more hit by uh, interest rate rises. It's perfectly natural what's happening. And that suggests it's not going to go away, reverse itself anytime soon. It's not about sort of a recession coming or something of the sort. And just one final economics question, because we're on economics. Um, and and the, the Democratic Party's response to the problem of inflation, which of course is what's caused the rates to be uh, put up by the Fed, is hand people money to offset higher prices. That doesn't sound like something you would teach in, in an econ course. No, John. no, this is absolutely hilarious. Uh, the inflation was caused almost certainly even, you know, left and right are realizing the inflation was caused by the government handing people money. So what do we do about it? We hand people more money printed money and borrowed money, especially. Now, this is not just a Democratic Party. Uh, Most of Europe is doing the same thing. We especially hand people money to buy energy, which we have made artificially uh, expensive in all sorts of ways. Uh, It's been, uh, now here, I'll turn it over to you historians. It's been, even from my amateur historian, economic historian point of view, it's been hilarious to see all the excuses and bogeymen and and witch hunts about inflation that I'm sure uh, Diocletian came up with with his inflation, what was it, the sixth century? It's the hoarders, it's the profiteers, it's greed, it's collusion. The chicken farmers have gotten together. Oh, it's Putin's price hike. It's not my fault. The dog ate my homework. Jeff Bezos. Here we are. We're, we're going to have price <laughs> controls. It's We are replaying the 1970s as farce. I hear there's a good Crosby, Stills, and Nash concert coming this weekend. Uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren wants price controls on, on energy, especially. Uh, you know, bring back the gas lines. And I hope you have a good uh, 1970s uh, cruiser that you can go park in front of the gas station. The Argentina analogy works for the, all that, too, John. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, subsidizing things in the face Price of controls. Inflation. Right, absolutely. Yeah. HR, I'm sitting in Charleston, South Carolina, Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, actually, and this state is governed by a chap named H.D. McMaster. Now, relax. I'm not nominating you to run for governor of California. I like you. I'd not dare do that to you. But it does beg this question. You were talking about a state of 40 million people. It needs a leader. It needs a general to lead the army. But can you lead an army of 40 million people, HR? <laughs> well, it, you have to have certain leadership qualities, right? You have to you have to be able to to frame complex problems and come up with real solutions instead of non-solutions based on ideology, which is what we're talking about here. Uh, and so, I, I just as we bridge from economics, you know, in, into into politics, I'd like to ask you, Bill and Victor, though you, who follow state politics, what you think the prospect is for correction. You know, I, I, you see an inkling of it. Uh, in, in San Francisco by voting out the school board, you know, for example, you see people like Michael Schellenberger, who wrote the book San Francisco, you know, running for governor. You see Rick Caruso in L.A. saying, OK, enough of this lawlessness and, and you know, the narrative about defunding police when, you know, when when his the, many of the stores that he was owned were being systematically, you know, looted. Uh, by criminal gangs. So, uh, so I, it, you know, let's how not you forget our own Lanny Chen. Let's not Lani forget Chen. Our, oh yeah, of course. Chen. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So our our own Lanny Chen. Uh, so so who could be the, the state? What is the title? Is it comptroller? State controller. Controller. So, you know, okay, guys, you, you tell us uh, what are the prospects. I mean, I think you have to educate the population. You have to galvanize people. I think a part of the California population that probably doesn't buy into all this nonsense. Are recent immigrant citizens, right? <laughs> Who's you know they, they don't share the values and the ideology of of, of the people who are you know who are tr- destroying our school system and trying to rename Abraham Lincoln you know high school you know or uh, or defunding the police or or you know the the various degrees of social justice warriors who are actually inflicting harm with these nonsensical policies on energy and water and so forth. So, all right, if I can, if I can just put in a, another, you know, an optimistic note here too. I mean, a, a very large number of, of Californians volunteer to serve in our military and they serve with great distinction and then come back to their communities as veterans. I mean, a statistic that I saw over the last couple of years that, that may surprise you is that one out of nine of every 
uh, of the servicemen and women who have given their lives to defend our nation since the mass murder attacks of September 11, 2001, were Californians. So uh, those those Californian veterans come back uh, with with a sense of, of duty to their country and make tremendous contributions in the state. Hoover Institution has a veterans fellowship, which I'm really proud of Hoover for having. And what they do is they 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 take proposals from veterans who want to make a difference in their communities and in this country, and and then give them the opportunity to, to have access to the resources of Hoover and more broadly at Stanford to mature that project and then roll it out at the end of that, that fellowship year. Two of those fellows worked on on, on California uh, live fires, and, and you'll see, you can probably find a seminar on that after today, I think it comes out today. Uh, but it's just one example of of really a bottom up, you know, citizens of the state saying, okay, enough of this. Let's roll up our sleeves and get and get to work. It is impressive. So California goes to the polls on June the 7th, and we'll see what message the voters send. And Victory, meanwhile, other states around America have been voting. Um, I'm trying to read the results have been as have been John and Neil and HR, and uh, I'm a little baffled. On the one hand, if you're looking at this from Donald Trump's perspective, the glass is half full. You got J.D. Vance uh, winning the Senate primary in Ohio. On the other hand, the glass is half empty. Uh, Brian Kemp, the incumbent uh, governor in Georgia, is going to probably win uh, his primary next week. And if the polls are correct, he's going to win by 30 points, Victor, which is a slap in Trump's face. So you watch these elections, as do we. What are what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think I agree with you. I, I, I think it's hard because there were so many, I mean, uh, Kemp, Trump didn't, I mean, by every standard, Kemp follows the MAGA agenda. I think he didn't get the endorsement because of an, he had a vendetta against him. And there was no way in the world Purdue was going to win that. And I think he endorsed Purdue because he was angry at Kemp. But on every issue, Kemp followed what Trump otherwise would approve of. Uh, there was a couple of things, though. I think basically it's a confirmation of the Trump agenda that would be deregulation, low taxes, energy, everything opposite of what's going on now, and a populist, inclusive party that's not the old uh, Republican silk-stocking party. However, I think people are starting to think that they can have the Trump agenda with someone, you know, not necessarily Trump. And I don't know if that's DeSantis. I think he comes out a winner of this because I think people, because of some of what you said, is it was a mixed bag. And I think he's waiting in the wings to see what's going to happen. The second thing is there were far more, and, and I'm just reading some things by Henry Olson and others. It seems like Republican turnout was much greater than in a percentage wise than, than past elections than was Democratic. So it shows you there's more enthusiasm. But all in all, I think we're headed to, I think, a historic correction in the midterms in November. And it'll be interesting to see what, I'm not sure Trump is going to run again. I think he's worried about his age. I think he's worried about health issues. I think uh, he's going to wait and put his uh, finger in the wind and see how things are. But it's there's something out there I can't quite put my finger on. It's not anti-Trump. It's just thank you, Trump, for refashioning the Republican Party in a more inclusive fashion with issues that matter. But maybe we can have somebody younger without the chaos. I think that's the message to be the to, to be the leader. Neil, what are your thoughts? I agree with Victor. I think we're seeing clearly that the Trump and Trumpism can exist separately. Uh, from one another. I don't think you could look at these results and say Trump's endorsement is the secret sauce of success. Uh, it's kind of patchy how his interventions have, have played out with J.D. Vance, uh, maybe the only really clear-cut beneficiary. Uh, and, you know, J.D. Vance's other important backers. Trump is not the only big player in Republican politics. Uh, you could argue that Peter Thiel is just as big a part of J.D. Vance's success, maybe bigger. I think Victor's right. Uh, and I also hope he's right, because I think there's a good reason why only on one previous occasion in American history uh, has a president served two non-consecutive terms, Grover Cleveland, way back in the late 19th century. I don't think the U.S. Uh, electorate, by and large, likes uh, people to have second acts. Uh, and my sense is that a candidate who's younger, 
uh, who has perhaps a little bit more experience as a governor, uh, can do much better in 2024. One final point, in, in a way, the issue landscape has changed. And we saw that uh, already uh, in Virginia. Uh, education has become a huge part of the revulsion against progressivism. Uh, because where are progressives doing the harm that is most lasting and most troubling? They're doing it in public schools, uh, as well as, of course, in private schools, where the ideology of progressivism is just as rampant. That's not a great Donald Trump issue, let's be honest. Uh, whereas other, uh, I think, other uh, figures, particularly Ron DeSantis, know exactly how to play these issues and to, to appeal to a really broad range of, uh, of voters, including Hispanic and African-American voters. So my sense is that this is indeed good news for, uh, for Team DeSantis. I was talking to a very experienced observer of American politics, far more experienced than I am, who said, you know what, it could be DeSantis Newsom in 2024, just to segue from our last uh, conversation. Uh, and, and that would be a that would be an interesting uh, a contest. And I, I doubt very much that any Democratic candidate is going to stand much chance in 2024. But let's not underestimate Newsom's ability uh, to, to perform. Uh, he certainly would be a far more formidable opponent for DeSantis than President Biden or Vice President Harris. Greg, you chime in. Um, but I, what some of the commentary I've seen was, has been interesting. Uh, Trump is, is in some ways following his base, as he always has. That was his great talent, is figuring out quickly what, what people wanted. Uh, but he's not really anointing uh, kings. He's trying to follow who the kings are, and, and you can kind of see that in the results. Um, I think that everyone is tired of the great steal of 2020, and that's not happening. And I think people recognize that they're, as a result of Trump's actions between the election and January uh, 20th, he simply is not electable. And people want to win. Uh, and I think that is, you know, people are making that shift from person to policy for a reason. In fact, perhaps we should be more upset about 2016 than 2020, uh, given the way things are going. But I want to challenge uh, to challenge you all a little bit on, on the wonders of Trump uh, policy. Um, a lot of it was great. Uh, some of our own senior fellows, uh, Kevin Hassett, for example, uh, was working at the Council of Economic Advisors and doing some wonderful deregulatory stuff behind the scenes. Uh, but there are some, uh, you know, there is an isolationism in the Trump populism. Uh, big tariff barriers, which are now causing us troubles with things like infant formula. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, the, uh, you know, pulling out of Afghanistan was not Joe Biden's idea. It was Joe Biden's catastrophe, uh, but it was Trump's idea. And I, I sense a big, uh, a big worry about where are we going in Ukraine? Uh, and, and that's going to be, I think that's going to be a difficult issue for a populist neo-isolationist uh, party going forward. So I, I'm not, it's not so obvious that you just take the edit copy uh, policies of uh, 2020, uh, 2019 and edit paste them into 2024 and have a coherent agenda that everybody's going for. I would just real reply to that. I think the public, whereas uh, Trump was probably going to get out of Afghanistan or leave us very tiny, irrelevant residual force, the public blames Joe Biden for the manner in which that happened. That was a debate. And, and correctly so. Correctly. And then I would also say that uh, in, in addition to that, Ukraine, uh, everybody I think supports the idea of helping Ukraine, but there is a golden mean there. When you're just eliminating debate basically and rushing through $40 billion, and you have people like Colonel Vinman talking about offensive uh, operations inside Russia, People are forgetting that this is the first land war in history in which a nuclear power is directly involved on the, on the European continent. It's never happened before. And the idea that we have some zealots that want you know, no-fly zones. So there's, there's going to be a, a situation where at some point the Ukrainians, I think because of their, they're drawing on a billion person NATO and it's you know, a lot of resources and weaponry. And for some reason, thank God, the Russians are not hitting those supply lines as they come across the border. They're not able to, or they're not doing it. But as Ukraine gets small, uh, stronger and stronger, and there's internal divisions inside Russia that I think are going to start to appear, 
they're going to have an existential question about these border, predominantly Russian-speaking borderlands that were illegally acquired by Putin. They'll probably at some point be able to to do make some pretty good progress, and then they're going to have a problem, and that is they keep going across the border and saying God did this or something and attack Russia. And how and what do you do? I mean, what is the idea? So, Vic, Victor, why, why are you portraying Ukraine as an aggressor? I mean, I, they're defending their country. No, I'm I mean, not. You said, I'm no, not. You said, no, when I, you said they're going across the border, I mean, I, you you really, they're hitting inside Russia. Wait, 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 they I have to hit inside Russia. Yeah, yeah right. They, okay, they have to hit. I agree. But I'm saying, I didn't say they were an aggressor. In the, I said they did operations inside a nuclear power. I'm not talking about morality or anything else. I'm just talking about real politics. If you've got a, a nuclear power involved in a land war controlled by somebody who is pretty ill and you're conducting operations to limit his aggression, but inside Russian territory, and you're doing it through U.S. intelligence and you have people in the U.S. intelligence community that are leaking, that they're bragging about taking out and assassinating generals, then you're, you're getting to a situation in which you're really upping the ante. We've never been in that situation before. I mean, nobody, I don't care who they are, knows what the consequences of that is going to be. They yeah, I would say, I would say, Victor, you know who upped the ante is Vladimir Putin. He upped the, he upped the ante in 2003 when he poisoned a presidential candidate. He upped the ante when he conducted a sustained campaign of political subversion that sparked the modern revolution. Then he invaded the country in 2014. You know, he continued to to to, uh, to prosecute did. the war. No, nobody was more. He's got nice up to sleep. So, but in terms of upping the ante in this in this context, he's the one who's rattling the the nuclear saber. And you know, I've just got to say, I mean, I, I he has to know. That first of all, I don't think nuclear weapons are usable in Ukraine, right? The winds blow to the east, you know, and and what is the viable target? Is he going to commit mass murder with one of the most destructive weapons on earth against Slavic peoples? I mean, what what is what is going to be what would be the military advantage he would gain from doing so? Because what he would, I think, he has to recognize that it's a suicide weapon for him, you know, and and so I I just think that whereas you were pointing out, I think some some you know some idiocy. On, on the part of people in our government, you know, who leaked, you know, this intelligence, you want it to look big, you know, when they're talking to reporters and you're right about all that. But I think the overall context is the person who is escalating this is Vladimir Putin. And actually, though, you know, for, he has the most to lose uh, if this if this conflict were to expand into the Black Sea, for example. But it wasn't logical, given the status of the Russian military to think they could have a shock and all, take out Kiev in four days. And, and that was crazy to begin with. And he, people had advised him and that was crazy. And yet he did it. And he did it probably because, you know, we had asked him to pump oil or we had told him not to uh, hit these uh, cyber targets, but these cyber attacks were okay. Or we, we put a, uh, a temporary hold on offensive weapons again. But whatever it the problem is he's not acting rational. And I'm not saying that's an excuse that you don't yourself be rational. I'm all for pushing him out of Ukraine. I'm just suggesting that when you have a lot of people talking about cross-border operations onto Mother Russia on its land, whatever the justified pretext, then you're, you have escalated whether that's the right word or not. You're in a new situation. And I don't know what he's going to do. I don't think he knows what he's. I don't think he's. I don't think he knows what he's going to do. Okay, let's get Neil on this. Before John asks his question, I want to agree with Victor, but but to to slightly change the focus. I don't think the nuclear scenario is as likely as it was a few weeks ago because I don't think that the Russian military would carry out the order uh, if Putin were to give it, and that he he would need their their uh, compliance. It's a two key system effect. But I think there are other aspects of our strategy that are, are risky that aren't getting as much attention. So if you think about the, the, the explicit strategy of weakening Russia, uh, if you think about where we're going with this, I think it's into pretty dangerous and un, un, unknown territory. Earlier today, I was speculating on another call about the point at which we would make uh, missiles available to the Ukrainians to sink uh, more of uh, Russia's Black Sea fleet. 
within minutes, the story broke on Reuters that that's exactly what we're thinking of doing to, to end the blockade of Odessa. So the escalation of this war, not just in terms of the tens of billions of dollars that the US has now committed to the Ukrainian war effort, but in terms of the quality and scale of weaponry we're making available to Kyiv, I think is, is leading us into somewhat uh, unknown territory. What do we mean by weakening Russia? Are we clear in our minds that regime change is, in fact, a desirable objective? Uh, it seems to, to me that the Biden administration is quite open to that. And I don't think Biden's Warsaw speech was a slip of the tongue. The entire speech was, in fact, a call for another 1989 uh, to happen. But, but this is actually very risky. And by the standards of Cold War I, uh, it's almost done fathomably risky. Uh, at, at the time of the first Cold War, no American president would have uh, called for the overthrow of uh, the Russian leader. Uh, I also think we, we have to ask ourselves what the, the grand strategy is here. And this is a question I'd like to throw at Victor and HR. Are we fundamentally using Ukraine uh, as a proxy war to signal to China, keep your hands off Taiwan? There are certainly people in the administration who think that way. Uh, it is not an accident that Joe Biden is off to Asia, uh, visiting uh, US allies in Asia. I think part of what is driving the armament uh, of Ukraine is in fact a strategy that is mainly concerned with China. But one consequence of this is of course, to drive Russia entirely into the arms of China and ensure that, that Russian resources will be available at bargain basement prices to the Chinese government. So my sense is it's not so much the nuclear threat. I'm less worried about that than I was a few weeks ago. It's more that I'm not quite sure where this takes us, uh, but you're absolutely right, Victor, to emphasize that, that it's a risky strategy that's being pursued here. And I must say, when I hear the French president and the German chancellor say we should really be trying to get a ceasefire now, I'm inclined actually to agree with that. I, I, I don't like where we're going here because I think it's fraught with, with risk. So I, I want to disagree with that strongly. Uh, this is our last chance uh, for people to believe what we say. Uh, in 1994, we said we guarantee the territorial integrity of Ukraine if you give up your nukes. And that means Crimea, that means the Donbass. Since then, where have we been? We have been one line in the sand in Syria. We sold out the Kurds. Uh, you know, we pulled out of Afghanistan after a trillion dollars, not tens of billions of dollars. Uh, and, and now the, what worries me, the only respectable end I can see is the territorial integrity of Ukraine, including Crimea and Donbass, and no ceasefire, permanent war, permanent division, if anyone's going to believe us again, which, you know, the Middle East, they, they why are they not, not on America's side? Because they've seen that we don't mean anything we say. That's what I think was was worst about the statements that our new our new war aims are to permanently weaken Russia and regime change in Russia is that that's that is in, incredibly dangerous for just that reason. It what we needed was Saddam Hussein number two. We're going uh, we're going to roll back every single inch of the territory of Ukraine and stop at the border. Uh, and make it absolutely clear this stops at the border. That's, in, in, you know, do, what does Russia get for her nuclear arms? That's that this stops at the border. Now, uh, there is this problem, of course, that supplies come through Russia. So the Ukrainians are going to be, uh, they're going to be attacking supplies that come through Russia, but they're not going to be invading Russian territory. Now, that that's where I wanted to go, go a little bit to my historical question. Um, we, how can we need, this has to be won by the West, meaning Ukraine, fills out its territory. Other, otherwise, you know, we don't mean any, otherwise the, the message to Xi Jinping is invade and then we'll have some negotiated settlement and divide something and sanctions and so forth. Uh, this, the, we either this time we actually mean it or else we're never gonna mean it ever again. But how does Russia lose? This is, we've had this, welcome by the way, Victor, to our weekly conversation on the how does Russia lose? And it did occur to me going back to Saddam Hussein was a useful one because he was a dictator and he lost a war. And we've been worried about, the scenario we've been worried about is, is a dictator loses a war 
Uh, a dictator can't afford to lose a war, and so will lob nuclear weapons because his alternative is not very pleasant. He's not going to wake up the next morning internally. Yet Saddam Hussein managed to lose a war and nonetheless remain as dictator. Uh, the limited war that was very clear would stop right at the borders. So um, back to you guys. Uh, can dictators lose a war? This, this is, I think, the real danger. Uh, we have to win. We and Ukraine have to win this war, meaning Russia is out of all the borders of Ukraine. How can Russia lose that war without needing, without inevitably needing what Biden has said it is now means, which is the overthrow of Vladimir Putin, which is going to lead to all sorts of risky, unpredictable behavior. It seems Putin could stay in charge, but I want to hear from you guys about that, especially. Why, why, why does anybody point. think that the Russian people don't support the idea that, and I disagree with him, but why would they think that they would go to war and then lose not only the war, but they would lose the area that they seize? And when we talk about Crimea, I understand it's Ukraine and everything, but there is some notice. I mean, in World War II, there 100,000 Russians were killed in Van Manstein's siege of, of Sebastopol. They have his, I mean, there's graves all over that area. They have some history there. So the idea that we're going to expel them all over, great, it sounds great, I'm for it. But that's going to require a commitment that's well beyond what we have now. And Neil pointed out about, I think rightly so, offensive. You're going to have to stop all supply by sea to the Crimea. And that means you're going to have to take out a lot of Russian ships, supply ships, warships. You're going to have to sink Wait. them. Yeah. They, they can't and, get through the they can't get through uh, the straits now. So they're not they're not supplying by sea. They're fighting by sea with. But I mean, yeah. you're going to have to say that nobody can get into the Ukraine by sea or land to so we, supply them. And, no, and we, that, we that, fought that, World War II over the freedom of Poland. Look how well that turned out. <laughs> no, we didn't fight it. That's the issue. We didn't fight in 1939. It well, was a phony war. In England started fighting in 1939. France and Britain. You're assuming you can get a president that's non-compos mentes with 39% approval rating to unite the country to up its commitment beyond 40 billion, because that's what it's going to take to get every Russian off of the pre-latest war, get them out of Ukraine, get them out of all the Russian. Yeah, I, but I, I think areas. I think we're I think we're going to extremes here, right? I think these are these are sort of red herrings, right? So I what I'd like to do is just comment, I think, on four fundamental misunderstandings that I think are you know, that are maybe undermining our ability to understand what we have to do next. The first is the word escalate, right? How is it an escalation to provide Ukraine with weapons that it needs to defend its own territorial integrity, right? Or to take back its territory. I do not see that as escalatory. I see that as correcting the policy of restraint that essentially greenlighted the invasion, the reinvasion on February 23rd of not providing defensive okay, weapons. That's a, that's, a, that, that's a legalism, because what you're talking about is each month, the number of weapons, whether you define it by dollars or material quantities, is going to increase. It's going to have to. And it's going to increase, 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 increase. And you can say that's a correction that we should always, that the policy of the United States has never been to give infusions of $40 billion to Ukraine. So now we are, and we're going to have to keep going if we want to expel every last Russian from the soil. Well, we can say it's not escalation, but it's it's going to be an increase then. It's in about the allowing so I, I say it's not, it's not an escalation of the war to give the Ukrainians uh, the capabilities they need to stop Russia from committing mass homicide against their civilians with the indiscriminate bombardment of residential areas. I don't see that as an escalation. It's going to, decide, it's, it's going to require the destruction of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. HR, which, I think which I think would probably take about 30 minutes, Victor, if it came down to it. And I think Russia knows that. I think HR had a couple more points. Well, the second point is it's not a proxy war. What are you talking about? Proxy war? A proxy war is that we're using a force to, for our own ends. The Ukrainians are defending their people their territory. That is not a proxy war. If it's not a proxy war, then why is the Secretary of Defense announcing to the nation that we are helping Ukraine so we can weaken Russia? Okay, that's my third point. That's my third point. Right? I think he I think he I think he he did not speak in a precise manner. Precise. What, our, what, what, our, what our objective should be is to 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 constrain Russia's war making machine economically and financially. That should be the goal. 
by you know by, by what we've put in place in terms of sanctions, you know, by what we're doing uh, in terms of going after Russia's international criminal enterprise that is part of their war-making capabilities, uh, and and uh, export controls, you know, everything that we're putting in place financially. That's what he should have said, right? Is that we want to reduce the resources available to Russia so so it can no longer sustain its war-making machine. That's what I think he should have said. And then finally, on 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 Neil's point. On a ceasefire, a ceasefire, Neil. I mean, come on. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I, you know, and Macron. I mean, I can't believe you're siding with Macron on a ceasefire. So, what did we have the last ceasefire? Right, 2014. How did that work out? Minsk agreement. What did the Minsk agreement do? It just basically locked into status quo and allowed Russia to consolidate gains in Donetsk and Luhansk. The time for the Ukrainians to push the Russians out of the south and the east is right. Now, because if it doesn't happen right now, the Russians are going to consolidate those gains and it's going to become more and more difficult and more and more costly. And by the way, there's no off ramp for Putin. When Putin takes the off ramp, he's just looking for the next on ramp. And what the control of that southern coast allows him to do is to just slowly choke Ukraine out, which is what his his plan is going to be. So, you know, I I just think that, you know, a, a ceasefire ought to be if there's a ceasefire, let the Ukrainians decide. Right. I think us dictate, you know, advocating for a ceasefire right now is is ludicrous after the, the, the Ukrainians have suffered so much. How about let you know, let Zelensky decide that and provide him with all the capabilities we can to see if they can generate enough combat power to reverse the gains, at least the gains that have been made since February 23rd. And, and I think that that is a realistic approach. And then, hey, whenever you know, whenever the Russians want to sue for peace. Or the Ukrainians want to accede to some kind of negotiations. Let them do. Let, let them figure it out on their own terms. Okay, HR. But very quickly, good, great idea. But then let's not have the president of the United States say that the purpose of this war is to remove Putin from power, which he did say. He said he wanted Putin out of power, and we had the Secretary of Defense said the purpose of this war is to weaken the ability of Russia, basically. And well, so you know, we're I, getting I from, what, we're getting from yeah. the top people who are saying that we have. An agenda. Okay, that's fine. But I'm saying to fulfill that agenda, it requires a level of means that is not there. And I don't think that the American people are willing to. I won't. No, that's like that's like President Obama saying Assad must go right without without having the right. So I I agree with Victor. I agree with you. I agree with you on that. A lot of times we get most adamant in our discussions, Victor and I, when we agree with each other. Hey, the the last thing I'll I'll say, though, is, hey, this war, of course, is having a, a worldwide effect. I mean, we talked to, we talked with Larry Summers about Farmageddon on the horizon. It's happening now. So under under the under the theme of what more can we do, I think instead of a no-fly zone, I think we should open up a maritime humanitarian corridor to Odessa to provide humanitarian assistance, but also to export uh, grain, to import fertilizer, to you know to 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 mitigate. Uh, the, you know, the, 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 uh, the catastrophe that's happening, you know, I, we're, we should all, Victor, you and I have our offices on, you know, on, on, in, in the, in the Hoover tower. Uh, and, and it's you and I and Herbert Hoover up there, you know, on the, on that, on that floor. And, and, you know, it makes me think of what Hoover did after world war one or world war two, we're going to need a relief effort internationally. That's analogous, uh, to, to the efforts that Herbert Hoover ran. HR, you're saying to me that the troika of Joe Biden and Lloyd Austin and Mark Milley are going to oversee an armed U.S. naval escort through the Black Sea to Crimea and then protect this huge lift and then be stalwart and supportive no matter what. Because if they do that, and after what we saw in Afghanistan, and I just don't think that is a very wise thing to do at all. Well, you know, I, I'll, t- I'll tell you, I guess, I guess it's just a question of how many people you want to watch starve to death, right? I mean, I, you know, it's, it's, it's there's, you know, it, we're, no, it's, it's a question of how many world. people I don't want to see dead. Well, the, the other way of achieving this would, in fact, be to stop the fighting and end the war. And, and this is p- precisely why I'm sympathetic to the idea of our doing that rather than continuing to pursue the policy, which I think has been the policy of the administration from the get-go of letting this war just keep going. In 1973, a comparable outbreak of conflict in the Middle East 
had enormous inflationary consequences uh, for the world, not just in terms of the price of oil, but the price of food. And we're rerunning that history with the difference that in 1973, Henry Kissinger uh, fought very hard to end the fighting uh, and prevent Israel from overreaching, which it might well have, given that Israel was well supplied with US arms. Kissinger made sure that the Israelis didn't humiliate uh, the Egyptians and the other Arab states. And, and that's not what we're doing now. In fact, we're driving uh, the Ukrainians to humiliate Russia uh, and you to destroy Russia's conventional forces. Gosh, and HR, I, with all due respect... Allowing. Are, you think we're driving <laughs> the Ukrainians? This is a highly risky I mean, thing to do. It is extremely the Ukrainians are, way are in front of really us, yes. taking a big risk in allowing the what I think is going to be overreach. Look, there are Ukrainian special forces already operating in on Russian territory. You don't think these... It's passers-by who are blowing up uh, Russian uh, fuel deposits. Uh, This is is escalating in meaningful ways, far beyond uh, the uh, the initial goal. So far better to allow those logistics convoys to to continue to resupply the artillery units that are are bombarding residential areas. During the Vietnam War, Russia brought in, right into the harbors of Haiphong, cargo ships, with munitions, what we did not do was bomb Russian ships. Should we have done it in Vietnam? Well, hey, I'll tell you, Victor, they also had 7,000 Russian soldiers operating the entire North Vietnamese air defense system, right? They provided them with all of their armored capabilities for the offensive that that uh, that they launched uh, that resulted in the fall of Saigon in 1975 and the failed Easter offensive in 1972. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> Victor, what, what I'm saying is, uh, what I'm saying is, you know, it is not an escalation to provide the Ukrainians with the with the arms necessary to keep their civilian population from being murdered uh, by, by, by the Russian and stingers and 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 actually starting to sink the Black Sea fleet, which was where which is where we're now apparently going. That is escalation. No, it's not escalation. Look at the look at the territory that they've gained along the Sea of Azov and the Black Sea. Why would we not give them the capabilities to defend their own territory? Uh, I mean, I, I don't understand it, Neil. I mean, but if HR, naval ships I, are operating uh, against Ukraine, against Ukraine, and actually, by the way, lobbing shells into Kiev and into Lviv, well, where, lobbing where missiles the from, line, the, from the you sea. Say, why not hit the ports where these Black Seas depart from in Russia then? Why not just have the, the American fleet go in there and say, you know what? This is a no-sea zone, and we're going to sink any Russian ship that leaves its port headed through Odessa. I mean... At some point, you have to tell so, us. So, where, okay, Victor, Victor, what, what Victor you're, you're, you're raising these hypotheticals, right, that are on in the extreme as a way to to argue against what is completely, you know, I think, a reasoned and, and appropriate uh, response. I mean, I think shortest ship missiles are appropriate because Russia is using those ships to bombard population centers. And, so and just to be clear, we don't need hypothetical here because we're, we're actively discussing supplying uh, harpoon missiles to Ukraine to target Russian warships in the Black Sea. And you're telling me that that's not escalation. To defend their coast? Of course that's not escalation. We should have done it in 2014. Well, if they we should have had harpoon we, missiles actually made for coastal defense. weapons available even last year, we might have deterred Putin. But now there's a, a, a shooting war going on. What I don't get, why are you against any diplomatic effort to end the fighting and end the killing. Hey, hey, listen, listen, Neil. I mean, why why, I'm not against any diplomatic effort, except, you know, we had a great diplomatic effort in Afghanistan, didn't we? You know, when when we surrendered, when we surrendered to the Taliban in February of 2020, that's a diplomatic effort. The key, the key is, I mean, you want a diplomatic effort to be consistent with what you've been able to achieve militarily. The diplomatic effort was the Minsk agreement. What the Minsk agreement did is it just locked in the status quo in 2014. Is that appropriate now for Ukraine? Are the Ukrainians ready to see close to their southern coast? I had a ceasefire proposal. You know, so I just go back to G.K. Chesterton, right? War is not the best way of settling differences, but it's the only way to ensure they're not settled for you. And they may be settled ultimately with with a, you know, some kind of a negotiated agreement, but but you know that negotiated agreement should be negotiated from a position of strength, right? George Schultz, who was with us until you know until uh, just over a year ago, um, said that you know negotiation is a euphemism for capitulation unless the shadow of power is cast across the bargaining table. 
right? My and I, I agree with we're you. At that but we're at that point. The Russians have failed. The, the, the Battle of Kiev was lost, and the Donbass offensive has failed. They're actually losing territory at this point. The question I'm asking, HR, is do you now use the leverage that the United States has on both sides, and no other power has this leverage? We've, we are supplying the weapons to the Ukrainians, and we impose the sanctions on the Russians. We have the leverage. Are you saying take no advantage of that leverage? What are the terms, Neil? What are, what are the terms? What are well, the you, terms? The, precisely let, what let, let the Ukrainians here. come up with the terms. They well, the, should come the, up with the terms. The, the terms that Zelensky has already made fairly clear would be acceptable would be a return to the status quo ante. Not that was to, a few months ago. Not, not, ante no. February 23rd or right. anti 2014. Yes, and not to undo, I mean, in other words, Zelensky has not requested explicitly the return of Crimea or of Luhansk and Donetsk. And he said those will be issues for years later, right? Exactly. Let's face it, this will, no, but this, the diplomacy that resolves the territorial settlement may take years. The argument I'm making is that it would be prudent at this point when the Russians are so clearly in a weakening position to end the fighting to achieve a ceasefire rather than to take the risk that the escalation scenarios that Victor and I have talked about occur. And I don't make, I don't say likely that the, there should be serious consideration to di- diplomatic efforts now, because I don't see why we're not doing that. Why let this play out? Why take the risk of sinking Russian warships, of letting Ukrainian forces cross into Russian territory, which as I've said, they've already done. Are we, going back to Victor's early point, are we sure that we wanted to go this far, arming Ukraine to this point at which they, in fact, inflict defeat and humiliation on Russia? So I want to keep on this in this discussion seem to want that to happen. But Neil, let, let's let, let, that let it's us much let me H- than you're making it sound. Let me and H- LHR ask you the, the opposite question. Is it acceptable for us to freeze this content? We promised... Ukraine territorial integrity, as we promised all sorts of things. Is it, can, so where we are, I think we, what we can now agree is forget um, uh, unfortunate statements by our leaders. The question is, do we allow the Ukrainians to win? The Ukrainians want to win, given the means, uh, allowed to have the means, they will win, they will push the Russians back. And the question is, do we join Macron in saying, no, you must stop accept the division of your country and and let our wonderful diplomats go at this for the next 20 years, uh, throwing away all sorts of promises we made, or do we let the Ukrainians win? And in your vision of a of a uh, diplomatic solution, which means continued war, really, for the next uh, God knows how long, uh, you know, wh- where does the U.S. come out of that? Is that an acceptable answer to you, especially as we look forward to China? Well, we began this conversation talking about, amongst other things, the serious problem of inflation, which is not simply a problem in California. It's a global problem. And that problem will get worse if this war continues and the entire Ukrainian harvest is lost. No, no this is, is, this is, I, that is, I got to go, let, that is not, inflation doesn't come from harvests. Inflation comes from, from fiscal policy. And if we would stop using our corn to make ethanol, there would be plenty of food going around. John, the reason that African, there is already the beginning of a famine in the Horn of Africa, because Africa relies so heavily on Russian and Ukrainian wheat imports. We're not talking here about just a bump in the consumer price index in the US, we're talking here about a major crisis of the sort that we saw in the 70s, when food prices rocketed in just the way that they've rocketed this year. There are really strong arguments for reaching a diplomatic resolution rather than allowing this to be resolved on the battlefield by Ukrainians using NATO weapons and without any clearly specified war aims at this point, we, I don't know what the war aims of the United in, States are. In Iraq, we, the, the Russians, the Ukrainians' war aims, which is the Russians back to where we promised them their country was, period. And that's the end of the border. And so what you're saying is we we give up basically on, on the West because we don't want the price of no, food. No, John, it's all, a global all, market. all Neil is saying is that to satisfy this goal, and I think it's a noble goal, to expel every Russian from what was... Uh, originally Ukrainian soil, Ukraine has redefined that message as they have to go into Russian territory to achieve that goal, or they have to sink 
major capital ships of the Black Sea, or they're not going to get which the they've already done. They've already done. Yes, it. yes, but they're going to have to increase that at a at a arithmetic rate. If they're going to really get every Russian out, they're going to have to go across the border and destroy uh, supply depots. Uh, I know planning depots. They're not going to invade and hold territory. No, they're going to go. They're going to go into Mother Russia, and they're going to have to sink Russian ships in international waters. Okay. And every time we know historically, the Rus- every time the Russian army goes beyond its borders, whether into Finland or into Poland, it doesn't do very well. And every time anybody goes inside Mother Russia, whether it's the Swedes or Napoleon or the Nazis, you name it, they don't do well. If you wait, wait, get we're the not Russian- invading and seizing territory. No, wait, if Russia. you want to get the Russian people galvanized and you want to get them really galvanized, then the best way to do it is to sink the Black Sea prior to the Russian fleet and to start blowing up even more depots inside Russia. And you will get a Russia who sees this as the great patriotic war. I guarantee you that. Whereas Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, should be saying publicly or privately, here is a peace deal or a ceasefire deal. Russia withdraws its forces to the borders of pre-February 24th. And if the Russians say no, then fine then they have it coming to them. But I'm not sure they would say no at this point. You don't think the Russians know that already, Neil? So they get what they took I mean, in 2014? I mean, I mean I, you don't think they know that that if they wanted to end this, they just had to start, they could just withdraw back to February 23rd and sue for peace? They know that. I mean, it, they have to be, I, I think, you know, winning in war, okay, if this, if winning, if we're defining winning as, as Russia out of all territory uh, that it's taken since February 23rd, then what that requires is convincing the Russians that they've been defeated. And you can't do that at the bargaining table with the, with the, with the status quo. So I think we're setting up a false dilemma here. You know, Victor's talking about like the Ukrainian army marching on Moscow. I mean, that's not going to happen. No, I'm not. I mean, you're but saying, you know, I mean, it's no, no, know. I'm saying what the Russian, what a Russians envision or, or the Kharkov counteroffensive. No, the Russian people don't con- consider that a great, I'm just saying what the Russian people will change on a dime if you have systematic attacks inside, even if it's close to the border, Russian territory, and you sink their black fleet, then I guarantee you they will look at this war in a very different light than they do now. Well, you know, the Russians, the Russians, can, preserve, Russian hey, the Russians can preserve the fleet. Just but, stay gentlemen, the gentlemen, off the coast. Gentlemen, I mean, gentlemen, we have to stop at this point. I'm getting the signal. We have to go. Hey, we can't, we can't Bill. We can't. We can't. I'm only joking. Okay, good. <laughs> Thank you, Governor McMaster. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, let's let's uh, let's close out with a very quick uh, question around the horn. Just thirty seconds or less, if you can. Uh, we look at U.S. policy toward uh, Ukraine. Uh, three options here, gentlemen: status quo, escalate, give them more lethal weapons, or de-escalate the diplomacy option. Uh, uh, Victor, why don't you go first? I would uh, do status quo and see what happens. I would not escalate. I wouldn't yank support. We'll see what happens. But I would try. I agree pretty much with Neil that we. We give them the ability to deter Russia from going and, and force them back to considering uh, a February 24th status. And if they don't want to do that, then that's their problem. I agree pretty much with what Neil said. John, John Cochran, escalate, de-escalate. Status so I, I like, like I'm sure HR is going to do, I'm going to refuse the uh, that giving them more weapons is equal to escalating. <laughs> We're going to give them the weapons they need. Um I think, again, the historical analogy that I always started this whole thing with was Saddam Hussein in the first Iraq war. I think we need a loud uh, retrenchment of our war aims. The aim, the we are going to support Ukraine in its aim to go back to what we promised and Russia promised and Germany promised and France promised in 1994, the territorial integrity of Ukraine and not one inch further. And we're going to let the Ukrainians do it because that's where we are now. Do we let the Ukrainians do that or do we try to stop them from it? HR? Yeah, I'll just say it's not an escalation to give the Ukrainians the capabilities that 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 allow them to stop the indiscriminate murder of their civilians. And and if that's if that's short of ship missiles, if that's medium air, air defense, if that's artillery systems, if it's radars, if it's drones, okay, that, I don't see that as an escalation. I then I think it's it's necessary uh, to help the Ukrainians achieve what they need to achieve militarily, such that they can determine the you know the the, the contours of the peace. Uh, on their own terms. Okay, and Neil, you get the last word. The United States has has played two roles uh, over the past century, to be the arsenal of democracy, which is the role that it's playing now, uh, but also it has been a peacemaker. And my argument is simple. 
given that we have the power to deliver more and more weaponry, which in Glasgow is called escalation. I don't know what you mean when you say increased weaponry is not escalation. I'll, 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 I'll definitely have to have that explained to me later. Or lethal weapons, Neil. Let's just make it clear to the Russians. Here's the choice. Here is a peace plan. And it's a peace plan that takes us back to the status quo ante. And it must be very clear that if you don't accept this, if you don't accept withdrawal of troops, if you don't accept a true ceasefire withdrawal of troops from Kherson, for example, then the war goes on. But we cannot simply be an arsenal of democracy with an open-ended commitment uh, to this war and no uh, explicit aims. Let's declare what peace looks like and, and tell the Russians and the Ukrainians, over whom we have leverage too, this is what peace looks like. Do you accept it? That's the, that is the proper role for the United States. And I don't understand why we're not trying to play that role. Okay, well, gentlemen, thank you for such a dull, dispassionate conversation today. Please, really, start showing your opinions. Uh, that's it for this episode of Goodfellas. Uh, a housekeeping note, uh, we'll be back in the first week of June, and our guest will be the director of the Hoover Institution, Condoleezza Rice. Uh, so look for us then. And one way to make sure you don't miss Goodfellas, subscribe to us. And when you subscribe to us, also review us, leave some comments for it as well. On behalf of the Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, John Cochran, our special guest today, Victor Davis Hansen. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Take care. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.